What's up, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Techish. It's me, your co-host Abadesi, and I'm joined by. Oh, what do you know? Michael isn't here today. I'm sorry to say, Michael's a bit under the weather. So today you're gonna get a mini Techish hosted by just me. Well, let's jump into the stories, shall we? So. The first thing we got to talk about is we have a unicorn in Africa. <laughs> in case you saw the story, you probably know that I am talking about the payments company Flutterwave, who, as of their recent raise of $170 million, are now valued at over $1 billion. $1 billion! Oh my lord, let's drop in some sound effects there. <laughs> this is pretty epic. Uh, so Flutterwave launched in 2016 as a Nigerian and US-based payments company with offices in beautiful sunny Lagos and San Francisco. Flutterwave helps businesses build customizable payments applications through its APIs. Pretty impressive stuff. They have more than 290,000 businesses using their platform to carry out payments. And they can do so in 150 currencies and multiple payment modes, including local and international cards. I think it's pretty, pretty incredible. You know, fintech is a hot space on the continent, in the motherland. Um, this isn't the first time we've been talking about an African startup on this show. We, of course, talked about Paystack previously, who were acquired by Stripe for more than 200 million. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but you know what they say about Nigerian people. We are the chosen ones. <laughs> this is crazy because I don't have Michael to come in and represent East Africa. I can just go wild and uh, say my viewpoints without <laughs> having to debate them. This is great. Anywho, more about Flutterwave. Um, they have a presence in 11 African countries and their CEO, Olugbenga Agbula, also known as GB, told TechCrunch that they're live in 20 African countries with infrastructure reach in over 33 countries all across the continent. So shout out Flutterwave team. Whoop whoop. Congrats on getting into the Unicorn Club. So let's keep it rolling with the good news, shall we? I feel like we need some good news this week. We need some good news. So <laughs> our second story is a shout out to Jigga. My mm -mm. oh yes. H to the Izzo has sold title to Square for the hefty sum of $297 million. It's a mix of cash and stock. And Tidal uh, is now going to have Square as its majority owner, even though it will continue to operate as a separate business. So if you don't really know that much about Tidal, it's the streaming music service that Jay-Z leads. He actually bought Tidal all the way back in 2015, $56 million. And he said that he was going to turn it into the first artist-owned streaming service. Now, this came at a time where people were talking about the royalty checks that streaming services like Spotify cut to artists. <laughs> you might remember that Taylor Swift famously removed all her music from the platform. Um, you know, this was just standing up for artist rights. Um, and now, you know, ever since Tidal launched, what we saw was artists deciding to launch exclusively on Tidal. I'm thinking of Beyonce Lemonade, not gonna lie, I was sad I couldn't listen to that on Spotify. <laughs> so it's pretty cool to see um, Square now acquiring Tidal. 
Jay made a great return on that investment, from what I can tell. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't mind buying a company for $56 million and then selling it for $300 million a few years later. <laughs> um, but I think what's really interesting is to think of how this acquisition fits into the future of Square's business model. Because, you know, you guys know Square is a payments company. And Tidal is a music company. So what is the connection? Well, apparently Jack Dorsey... Yes, I know what you're thinking. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, he is also the CEO of Square. Because apparently, when you're a cis-hat white guy, you can be CEO of as many companies as you want to be. Um, but anyway, he has long wanted Square to evolve from a payments company for small businesses into a broader operation. Think, you know, Amazon, Alphabet, which owns Google, a number of standalone units. So Square's got its cash app for consumers. It has Square Seller for small businesses. What we are probably going to see is Tidal creating a third business line, all focused around artists and the music industry. So watch this space. Let's see what happens there. Michael, what do you think about this? Oh, kidding, kidding. Michael's not here. Boop. Sigh. Okay, now we're going to move on to some juicier cuts. Some juicier cuts. So CBS News broke a story about a black woman who's worked at Amazon since 2017, who is now suing Amazon for racial discrimination, alleging that the company purposefully didn't promote employees of color and even pays them less than their white counterparts. So I actually became aware of this story after seeing, I think Avery Francis, the CEO of Bloom, posting a news clip on Twitter. So I watched the news clip, you know, my heart really goes out to... Um, Ms. Newman and her very honest account of what she's faced. And it got me thinking about something. It got me thinking about how we have normalized prejudice, how we've normalized racism, how we've normalized sexism, how we've normalized sexual assault and violence against women. And I just want to give you like a very specific example that made me think about that. During the interview, she talks about you know, this alleged case of her manager at an offsite putting his hand on her, on her leg, moving his hand up her thigh. And now in that moment, she was so frozen, you know, she couldn't do anything about it. She did eventually raise this issue uh, to the company. And the manager actually did it again. And the first thing the journalist asked her after this revelation was, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave? And her response to that was, so this is, you know, Charlotte Newman, the person suing Amazon. Her response to that was, why is the burden always put onto the victim? Why should I have to leave a job that I like doing at a fast growing company, one of the fastest growing companies in the world? And let's talk about it. You know, she's probably paid well. She's probably got some equity she's waiting to vest on. Why should she leave? And the fact that the journalist asked that question and the fact that we are still asking those questions angers me. I'm not going to lie. It makes me really, really angry. You know, here in the UK, we've been following the story of Sarah Everard. You know, she's a lady that went missing not far from where I live. Similar age. Very scary, very sad. The police are still investigating the case, but they've arrested a suspect who is a police officer. And not far from where they arrested him, human remains have been found. So I'm sorry, everyone. I should have issued a trigger warning before this. Um, you know, please approach with caution. But one of the responses that I've seen on social media 
to this news is, hey, women, here's how to be more safe. Hey, women, here's how to, you know, get home at night. Why do women have to change? Why do we have to change? We don't dominate society. We don't own the power. We don't influence. And now I realize that's why we're the ones that have to change, right? Because when you have power and influence, you get to set the agenda. You get to decide what happens. And sometimes that choice is the choice to not be uncomfortable and then the choice to do nothing and the choice to avoid difficult conversations, the choice to avoid doing things differently and putting all of that labor, all of that work, all of that responsibility onto someone else. And it's happening in the case of the public response to Sarah Everard, and it's happening in the media's response to Charlotte Newman. I mean, Charlotte Newman to me is a brave and courageous woman, a brave and courageous woman who stood up where many of us, myself included, did not have the courage to. You know, I too have suspected I haven't been paid the same as my peers. I didn't do anything about it. I mean, maybe I just ended up quitting or leaving. I have also been touched inappropriately by people. I didn't do anything about it. And I think, you know, it's complicated. I get that. It's complicated. But at the same time, unless people do something about it, nothing changes. And I think when people have the courage to do something about it, the way that we respond to them is very important. We have to believe them. We have to support them. And we should not be taking the side of the perpetrators. We shouldn't be asking, oh, well, why didn't you leave then? We should be going, who is this person? Show me him now. Let me find him. And in a similar way, we don't need to be teaching women how to be more safe. We need to be teaching men how to not be violent against women. Okay, this is a conversation about misogyny. And clearly, we need to talk about it some more. We need to talk about it some more. So talk to the men in your life. Talk to them about their views of women. We, we should all be feminists, like Chimamanda said. Let's do it. Okay, so final story of the day comes from a really interesting article. Cherie Atchison, who was formerly head of DNI at Challenger Bank Monzo, now global uh, head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Pecan, an employee engagement platform. She published a super interesting blog on Forbes yesterday. This is an opinion piece called Stop U.S. Exceptionalism in Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Strategies. I wanted to talk a bit about this because in the last few months, I have had so many different conversations with different diversity and inclusion leaders, diversity, equity, inclusion leaders, belonging leaders at different tech companies, at different corporate companies in the UK, in the US, all across the world. And there is 100% a trend I've identified, which is US-centric approach, which, let's face it, doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? Like every country has a unique culture and within that culture, a unique group of people, unique groups of people with different lived experiences, different levels of, you know, privilege, different privileges. And I think when you try to do a one size fits all inclusion strategy, you're destined to fail because you're losing all of that personalization to that specific culture and to that specific experience. You know, race isn't top of the agenda in every country. Not every country has had a history of slavery and has had this history of, you know, generations and generations and generations of black people in that culture integrated into that. And I think it's really important to recognize that. I mean, of course, race, prejudice, racial discrimination will always exist everywhere, but there could be more nuances within the conversation depending on the country that you are. Maybe in certain countries, it's actually about the largest 
migrant group that has settled in that country because of that historical context. And I think being able to apply that country-specific, city-specific lens is crucial to succeeding in this work because the history of that nation and the history of that culture determines the present and determines the reality of today. And just because something's worked in America because there are certain you know, inclusion priorities based on what's happening there, politically, socially, doesn't mean it's going to be the same in other countries. And I think it's a really, really important conversation for us all to have. I'm really grateful that Cherie published this article on Forbes, and I'm really excited to see how different companies respond to it. But yeah, we do often in tech look to the US for everything. <laughs> you know, Silicon Valley, all the big tech companies, you know, the fan companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, they're all based in the US. Then a lot of these US-based companies have international subsidiaries. They might have a European headquarters in London or Dublin or somewhere else. But even when they exist, we're still very much living in the shadows of the US. And I say this as someone who, you know, has only ever worked like, yeah, predominantly really for um, UK companies. I guess the experience outside of that was when I worked at Product Hunt because, you know, that was a SF, San Francisco based company. Um, but, you know, when I worked at Amazon, when I worked at Groupon, when I worked at Hotel Tonight, these were all companies where I was still very much reporting into bosses based in the States or at least very closely in touch with them. And that might maybe work in other dimensions of the business, whether that's, I don't know, product or sales or something. But I think when it comes to things that are deeply rooted in lived experience and culture, you got to personalize that. You got to personalize it. So definitely check out this Forbes article, spark this conversation in your team if you think it could be of value. All right, everybody. Well, that brings us almost to the end of this episode. I told you it was going to be a mini tech-ish because I'm without my other half today, my podcast husband, <laughs> Michael. It was hard without you. It felt weird. It was like going for a run with only one of my sneakers on or something like that. Um, hopefully <laughs> you all listening at home enjoyed it. Um, let's make Michael feel bad by telling him this was the best episode of Techish ever. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Before I let you go, I've got some reviews in the house, reviews in the house. Here is a review from Candy Can Do It, based in the US. And she says, Techish is having the exact conversations that I wish I had with my peer group. This show has gotten me through an isolated 2020 and brick cold NYC winter. Almost every episode, I'm taking notes to look up things I don't understand or that I've been introduced to through this podcast. Abadesi and Michael clearly know their stuff, but beyond that, it's more than evident that they're humble. I earnestly began listening with interest in what conversations people of color are having abroad, and I genuinely feel more connected to the show hosts and topics than I ever could have anticipated. I look forward to new episodes and any growth or community built with this podcast. Thank you both. Oh, you know what? I'm actually blushing. This is the part that Michael would probably cut out in the edit. But since Michael's not here, I'm going to just say it. I love reading reviews. That's such a lovely, 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 sweet thing to say. Candy, I'm so glad that we could brighten up your day and, yeah, bring some knowledge and fun into your life. That's awesome. Please keep your reviews coming, everybody. You know we love to read them. You know we love to hear them. Did you know, did you know that we are now on socials? You can follow at TechishPod on Twitter, on Instagram. You can interact with us there. We're posting clips from previous shows and we love to hear you. So please follow us, talk to us, comment, and we will see you next week. Bye.